Hi, I'm your host, Coy Atkins, and thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Nerds. Daytona Beach, Florida is known worldwide for college spring breaks, NASCAR races, and bike week. Millions of tourists travel to this small beach town every year. But in 2006, as college students were getting ready to head to Daytona for spring break, they had no idea that a serial killer was on the loose that had killed at least one person a month for three consecutive months. This is the story of the Daytona Beach Serial Killer. On December 24, 2005, Lakita Gunther was preparing for Christmas with her roommate Stacy. Lakita was 45 years old and had a rough life. She was living in Daytona and worked as a sex worker, but no matter how hard life was, she and Stacy had a Christmas tradition. Every year, they would stay up late, drinking and cooking together. In the afternoon on Christmas Eve, Lakita told Stacy that she had to run to the store but she would be back soon. A few hours passed and Lakita didn't show up. Christmas Eve turned to Christmas Day. And then Christmas passed and there was still no sign of Lakita. At first, Stacy was a little upset and angry. They had this tradition and she said she would be back. So where was she? One possibility was that maybe she went out drinking or something. So Stacy decided to go look for Lakita at the different bars that she would frequent but no one had seen her. Little did she know that police had already found Lakita. On the morning of December 26, 2005, Lakita's body was found in an alley off of North Beach Street in Daytona Beach. Her body was left wedged in a small spot between two buildings in a kneeling position. She was left nude, other than socks that she had on and her cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the back of her head from a 40 caliber bullet. Detectives were able to collect semen from the scene, but when they ran the DNA through CODIS, they didn't get any matches back. And CODIS stands for the Combined DNA Index System, and that's the FBI's database for DNA profiles from different things, from sex offenders to people that were convicted of different felonies. On January 14, 2006, a construction worker was working near LPGA Boulevard when he came across the body of a woman who was positioned face down in the middle of a dirt road at the construction site. The woman was later identified as 34-year-old Julie Green. Just like Lakita, Julie was shot in the back of the head with a 40 caliber bullet, but it also appeared that the killer may have taken some of Julie's cash. Julie had two daughters at the time, and their ages were 11 and 13 years old. And Julie was actually friends with Lakita. When Lakita died, a poster was hung in the alleyway for people to sign, and Julie was one of the friends that signed the poster. Like Lakita, Julie had fallen on hard times. She had a drug addiction, and she was a sex worker to make ends meet. Police learned that Julie was last seen on January 13th. 
She was with a friend and told them that she was going to use a payphone and then she'd be back. But she never returned. That was the last time that she was seen alive. From the crime scene, investigators were able to identify a specific set of tire prints that they believe came from the suspect's vehicle. The tire tracks were identified as factory tires from a 2003 Ford Taurus or Mercury Sable. Investigators were also given a letter that Julie wrote to her boyfriend, who was in jail, just a few days prior to her death. And that letter read, Hi Mitch, you get out March 3. I want to go home with you. I need help. Been up for days. Sorry about the writing. Very tired. If anything happens to me, Smiley knows all. Sorry for this letter, so short, but you have to know what I feel. Love you always. I want to go home and start a new life. Love you. I will write you back soon. Love, Sissy. And Sissy was Julie's nickname. Police questioned Julie's boyfriend about the letter. They eventually figured out that Julie was worried something may happen to her because she admitted to ripping off someone, and that was believed to be over drugs. But other than that, there were no other signs of what may have happened to Julie, or no suspects. On February 24, 2006, Daytona police received a 911 call from a convenience store payphone. The caller described a wooded area near Williamson Boulevard and Mason, and they said that there was a body there. When the call taker asked the caller for their address, he gave an address that turned out to be a vacant beachside lot. When police arrived in the area, they found the body of 35-year-old Iwana Patton, exactly where it was described to be. Unlike Lakita and Julie, Iwana was not shot in the back of the head. Her cause of death was from a gunshot, but police believed that she fought with the suspect prior to being shot. Investigators were also able to collect DNA from a suspect from the scene. Iwana was born in Buffalo, New York. At the time, she was living in a small town just north of Daytona called Holly Hill. She was working as a nursing assistant at an assisted living facility. Just like Lakita and Julie, Iwana was going through a hard time. She often used a local homeless center as her mailing address. Even though she had a history of being arrested for prostitution, it's not believed that she was involved in any sex work at the time. A friend of Julie's actually said that they believed Julie and Iwana were friends, and that Iwana had gone over to Julie's house multiple times. Now, the first thing that police wanted to do was find out who this 911 caller was. They ended up tracking the man down because they received another tip where someone told police who the caller was and that they knew who it was because they were also with him the day that he found the body. Police did say that they interviewed the caller. They were able to determine where he was at the time at all three deaths and why he was in the wooded area the day that he found the body. So police ruled the caller out as a suspect. But since this case is... Still an open case, police aren't releasing his name since he's a witness. They also aren't releasing the 911 calls or any details that he gave them so far. So all we know about this mysterious caller is that he was located, identified, and ruled out as a suspect. And here's what we have so far. There was one murder, 
each month for three months in a row. December, January, and February. Lakita knew Julie, and Julie knew Iwana. For how popular it is, Daytona really isn't that big of an area, so it's not uncommon to think that they may have known each other from working around the area. At the time, police had DNA from the first and the third murder, tire tracks from the second murder, signs of sexual assault from all three murders, and a 40 caliber bullet from all three murders, but no suspect. While Iwana's family said that they didn't believe that she was involved in sex work, the police stated that they believed the killer was specifically targeting sex workers. Another kind of odd thing, the killer wasn't trying to hide any of the bodies. Yes, they were kind of in isolated areas, but they were just lying on top of the ground. There was no attempt to bury them or cover them up with anything. March of 2006 passed with no murders. Then April, and in May, Mike Chitwood was hired as the brand new police chief of the Daytona Beach Police Department. Immediately, he was under a ton of pressure to find the serial killer. And if you've seen any episode of Criminal Minds, then you can probably already guess what's about to happen next. A special agent from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement put together a profile of the killer. He said that the victims were substitute victims and that they were providing a channel for the suspect to act upon stressors in his life. It was believed that someone close to the suspect was the source of the stress and that this person may end up becoming a victim themselves. The suspect was believed to be a white male who may have had a wife or a girlfriend at the time and that there was a female figure in his life that he held some sort of hatred for. They believed he was employed, which allowed him to pay for sex workers often. They also believed that he was familiar with each victim, or that he may have been a past customer for them. The profile also said that they believed he had an obsession with socks. In the end, all but one of his victims would be found mostly nude, with the exception of having socks on. Police began collecting DNA voluntarily from multiple people around the area that they believed were persons of interest. It was also reported that other cops in the area had been questioned, leading theories to believe that a cop was the suspect. In the spring of 2006, a woman went to police and said that she believed her ex-husband may have been the killer. According to the woman, her ex-husband was a paranoid schizophrenic who confessed to shooting a woman at close range. Investigators were able to gather the ex-husband's DNA from several different areas in the home, but it didn't match the DNA that they had collected from the other scenes, so he was ruled out. As sudden as the murder started, they seemed to stop. 2006 went by without any other murders from the serial killer, and then 2007 goes by. Still nothing. As 2008 approached, police weren't sure if the suspect was even still in the area. How does someone kill one person a month for three months and then they just stop and there's no sign of them? But it wouldn't be long into 2008 when police got an answer to if the killer was still around or not. On January 2nd, 2008, Daytona Beach police officer Reeder pulled his patrol car into a secluded parking spot on Hancock Boulevard and he was pulling in there to do some paperwork. As he began working on his paperwork, Officer Rita rolled the car window down. 
and immediately he was hit with a foul odor. When he got out of his car to find where this odor was coming from, he found the decomposing body of Stacy Gage. Stacy was only 30 years old at the time of her death. Just like the previous three victims, she lived a tough life. She dropped out of high school as a senior. She was not known to be a sex worker, but she did have a history of drug use with cocaine. On December 10th, 2007, Stacy was living with her grandmother. She asked to borrow her grandmother's 1998 Plymouth Voyager to go to the store to buy some ice. But Stacy never returned home. And after a few days, she was reported missing by her grandmother. After she left the house, Stacy was seen on camera at a Publix grocery store, but it's not known where she went after that. Even though Stacy didn't have a history of sex work, investigators in this case believe that she was meeting a potential client that turned out to be the killer. Investigators were able to determine that Stacy was killed by a single gunshot to her head. They believe that she was killed either December 10th or 11th. Eventually, they did find the van at a nearby apartment complex, and when they talked to residents around there, they said that the van had been there for about a month, but they never saw anybody around it. A few weeks after Stacy's death, the Daytona Beach Police officially stated that they were investigating Stacy's murder as being connected to the other three. The last time that the killer struck, it was for three months in a row, and that started in December. With Stacy's death believed to have been in December, Police were worried that the suspect was going to start the same pattern again. In January 2008, investigators brought a new approach to trying to track down the Daytona Beach serial killer. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment, and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. At 24 years old, she's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that maybe you never truly know someone, and sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One Moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. The Amazon link is in the show notes. And if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it. And please let me know what you think of it. A task force was formed with the sole purpose of trying to find the Daytona Beach serial killer. It was made up by detectives from the Daytona Beach Police Department and special agents from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. They started with re-interviewing all the persons of interest that they had in the previous cases. Police Chief Mike Chitwood released the following statement to the media. I think he's one of us. We're going by what the profile says. This is a clean-cut guy. He's probably married. 
He may have a girlfriend. He probably has a job. He is our next door neighbor. He's someone that we go to church with. It's somebody who is a respectable, decent human being on the outside. But on the inside, they are out there preying on women. He is dehumanizing women. The task force was working, trying to do undercover operations in hopes of literally catching him in the act. The task force also began collecting DNA samples from volunteers. In one incident, they conducted a traffic stop on a doctor who had a sex worker in the car with him, handcuffs, and a handgun. The doctor volunteered his DNA, but it didn't match the DNA that was collected from the other crime scenes. As hopeful as everyone was that this would lead to the killer, the undercover operations didn't bring any answers. The voluntary DNA samples didn't match, and the case went cold. There were no known victims for the rest of 2008, and all of the leads turned to dead ends. Over the years, there were several other people that looked like they may have been a good suspect. In 2018, four sex workers in Laredo, Texas were murdered by a man named Juan David Ortiz. Those victims were also killed with a 40 caliber handgun. Those women were killed within a time frame of two weeks, and investigators thought that if this was the Daytona Beach killer, he was now acting impulsively and there's no telling how this was going to end. Juan was captured by police when a woman he abducted escaped and was able to lead police straight to him. Juan even fit the profile for the most part. He served in the United States Navy from 2001 to 2009. He had spent a lot of time on the East Coast. And when he got out of the Navy, he worked for the Border Patrol up until his arrest. Juan was even married and had a master's degree. Juan confessed to the murders in Texas, pretty much saying that he hated sex workers and that was his motivation for killing them but he didn't admit to the Daytona murders. As good as it looked that Juan may have been the guy, he was ruled out as the suspect. But it wouldn't be long till police had another suspect. On March 7, 2016, 200 miles south of Daytona Beach in Palm Beach County, 35-year-old Rachel Bay was found murdered on the side of the highway. She was left naked, severely beaten, to include a fractured jaw, multiple broken teeth, and defensive injuries on her hands. Her cause of death was by strangulation. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office was able to collect DNA from a sexual assault kit. They ran the DNA through CODIS. They didn't get a match back to a suspect, but they did get a match back to a case. The DNA profile matched the DNA that was left at Lakita and Iwana's crime scene. So now they know that it's the Daytona Beach serial killer. But that's where this case goes cold also. Until 2018, when everything changed. In April of 2018, events took place that would forever change criminal investigations. When the Golden State Killer was arrested after his DNA was identified from a genealogy website. But here's the trick to that. It's kind of a waiting game. The odds of a suspect mailing in their DNA to see who their ancestors are is pretty slim. So law enforcement has to hope and wait that a relative will do it. A family member to the Daytona Beach serial killer submitted their DNA sample to a genealogy website. 
And once again, this is still an open case, so the exact relationship of that family member isn't being released yet. But their curiosity into their family ancestry led police 37-year-old Robert Hayes. Investigators immediately tracked Robert down, and they put him under surveillance. While they're watching him, he threw out a cigarette butt. Police collected the cigarette and had the DNA tested, and it came back as a match to all the DNA samples they had from their murder cases. On September 15, 2019, Robert Hayes was arrested in Palm Beach County. As of now, Robert's being charged with the murder of Lakita, Julie, Iwana, and Rachel. The trial is still ongoing, but prosecutors have said that they are seeking the death penalty. And I couldn't find anything about what Robert was currently doing for work at the time he was arrested. But at the time of the murders, from 2005 to 2006, Robert was attending Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach studying criminal justice. I'm sure more will come out at the end of the trial. But as of now, police haven't released any motive for the killings or if the profile was correct on why he was killing or even why there were such long gaps between killings. But whether we know a motive or not right now, whether the profile was correct and there was one woman in his life that he hated and had resentment for, or even if he was just like Juan in Texas and hated sex workers, at the end of the day, regardless of their occupations, addictions, or social statuses, these women never deserved this. If you know anyone that lives a high-risk lifestyle or someone that needs help with an addiction, reach out. Let them know that you care about them. Because there are bad people out there that will take advantage and try and hurt them just because that they are mad at someone else. And this brings us to a conclusion of this episode. Be sure to follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast. Wherever you're listening, please subscribe and leave a rating or a review. They really help the show out a lot. And thank you for listening.